This is Views from the Watershed. I'm Lizzie Mogul, your tour guide. This walking path along the Ashokan Reservoir is really a gorgeous spot. You've got the shining waters of the reservoir, the majestic mountains, the human-built and the natural landscape together in harmony. But we can't let beauty distract us from history. Underneath these placid waters are the remnants of eight communities that were displaced to build this reservoir. The early history of the New York City water system is actually a traumatic one in the collective memory of the Catskills. Water is the life force of any city. Uh, Without water, New York City would have literally and figuratively dried up. My name is Diane Galusha. I have lived in Margaretville for 30-something years. I wrote a book called Liquid Assets, A History of New York City's Water System, because I felt like we needed a resource for historical background for all of the changes that were happening in the watershed. The earliest water sources in colonial New York were springs and ponds and wells. As the population grew, these sources became contaminated. Uh, Garbage, dead animals, uh, chamber pots thrown into the street, manure from thousands of horses. Also, pigs and other livestock were allowed to roam freely. Of course, fouled water and filthy streets were an excellent breeding ground for diseases. So there was a a particularly virulent outbreak of cholera in 1832, and 3,000 people died. And a third of the population then fled the city. Another plague of city life, fire, took 700 buildings in 1835. The Great Fire took place in the middle of December. The rivers had frozen over. The fire pumpers could not get enough water to douse the flames. And of course, all the buildings were made of wood, um, and they just went up one right after another. And they just had to watch the city literally burn down around them. The city decided to look north to the Croton River to find a more abundant source of fresh water. So in 1837, the city began constructing this early Croton system, a 42-mile-long underground aqueduct connected the primary reservoir, which was in the town of Cortland, to a holding reservoir in what is now Central Park. There was an above-ground distributing reservoir on Fifth Avenue, now the site of the New York Public Library's main branch. As the city grew, the network of reservoirs grew too. Between 1890 and 1900, the population of New York City doubled. City fathers were now obliged to provide fresh, clean, safe water to four million people instead of million. So they began to look at other sources. From the early days, various proposals were considered for water sources for New York City. They ranged from building canals to harnessing the tides to damming the Hudson River and other rivers, including the Passaic River in New Jersey, not even in New York State, and piping the water across to New York. There were proposals to tap the Great Lakes and run pipe along the Erie Canal. The Adirondacks were considered, but they all had one thing or another arguing against them. Distance, cost, the state of technology and construction capability at that time. 
Politics also entered the quality of the water. The Hudson River particularly was even in the 19th century polluted. And so it would have taken a lot of convincing to get people to drink that water. In the end, they settled on the Catskills. The Catskills is a water-rich, rain-rich region. It was also sparsely populated, heavily wooded, and trees are very good for water quality. In 1905, the state passed the law that was known as the McClellan Act, and that authorized the city to acquire lands, to build reservoirs and aqueducts and other uh, elements of the system. To do so, they were allowed to use eminent domain, which was the use of condemnation to take private property to construct public infrastructure for the greater public good. The city's allowed to basically take over an entire region. The local folks had no recourse at all. The writing was on the wall that they were going to have to leave in order that New York City residents have clean and abundant water. The Asopus Creek was dammed for the Ashokan Reservoir. The Asopus Creek watershed, the Ashokan Basin itself, had been occupied for thousands of years by the Asopus Band of the Lene Lenape Indians. That area was used seasonally for hunting and fishing. They were then supplanted by European settlers who had farms, who used these copious water resources to run mills and other industries. They also capitalized on the forest by exploiting timber. Hemlock bark has a lot of tannin in it, and that was used to produce leather. The hemlocks that grew throughout the Catskills were pretty much decimated. By the time the Ashokan Reservoir was built, a new industry had sprung up, and that was tourism. The railroad had come through in the 1870s, and this provided a pathway for urban folks to make their way to the Catskills and spend their summers away from the stifling heat and the germs of the big city and stay in boarding houses, inns and hotels. This became a very lucrative way for rural dwellers to make a living. So this was heavily impacted when the city came in and claimed properties. It was a shock to the economy. They had carefully cultivated these farms and boarding houses. This force from very far away was coming and saying, we, we want your land and you must give it to us. In the Ashokan Basin, there were eight communities that were either eliminated entirely or partially moved to new locations. 2,000 people were displaced. That was a traumatic experience for local folks. There were generations of people who had lived on the same land. It was a disruption of history. It cut off the social and community development of an entire region. People were dispersed. Uh, their neighbors were gone. Their relatives lived somewhere else. Many people did not 
survive this upheaval. Their lives were shortened by sorrow. There were stories of heartbroken people who didn't last very long after they were required to leave. In order for the city to claim land, they had to first pay you half of the property's assessed valuation. It wasn't a lot of money, and you could then negotiate with the city for a price for your property. If you were willing to accept that price, you could just take the money and and leave. If you did not accept that price, you would then file a claim and hire a lawyer. There was an appraisal commission appointed by the governor that heard testimony about the valuation. This process took time. In the meantime, you had to leave anyway. It wasn't like you could wait until you got all of your money. You just had to leave. If you disagreed with the appraisal commission, you could then take your case to the Supreme Court, which took even longer, years sometimes. In the meantime, work was proceeding on the reservoir itself, and you had to move. The Board of Water Supply was very meticulous about keeping records, about the condition of properties and buildings and such, uh, who lived there, in order to come up with a valuation, they were bean counters. They were looking at what your house looked like. Did you have a broken window? Did it need painting? Was there a hole in the roof? Or had you let the property deteriorate? Not surprisingly, property owners valued their homes and farms in a much different way than the city did. You were looking at it as a place where you had lived for the last 30 or 40 or 100 years, and you didn't see any of those defects. You saw a place where you had grown up, your parents had passed, your children had been born, and you had celebrated happy occasions and marked tragic accidents. All of life had been lived there. How do you put a value on that? I think that was the biggest shock, having to ask for money for something that was priceless. The city hired the grubbing contractor, which was responsible for removing all of the buildings and all of the vegetation, for filling in the cellar holes, for filling in the privies, um, and basically making it look like nobody had ever lived there. There are stories of local men being hired by the grubbing contractor and being forced to torch or to demolish their own homes. Imagine what that was like. The grubbing contractor would either auction the buildings or sell them back to the owner. That's such a perverted system that the owners could actually buy back their house, take it down and move it somewhere. Even as the city was building the Ashokan Reservoir, it was anticipating the next move, which was the development of the Schoharie Creek as a reservoir just to the north of the Ashokan. The folks in Gilboa had been hearing rumors about this. People thought, oh no, this will never happen. But it did. The history of the reservoirs is basically history interrupted. There's no way to get back to that place where they were. It's the history 
that is so vulnerable to being lost. Because, who said, if we forget, we are doomed to repeat it. And I feel compelled to collect that history and preserve it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Views from the Watershed. Learn more about this program at walkingthewatershed.com slash podcast tour.